If you turn your Bibles to 1 John and uh, chapter 2, uh, we'll pray before we read, but we'll be reading from verse 29 and reading into chapter 3. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. So 1 John 2 and verse 29. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he has appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. We have seen that John has given us tests to show the marks of Christians. And we've seen in our studies on Lord's Day afternoons a doctrinal test, a test that pertains to the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, as a person who professes to be a Christian, embraced Jesus as the divine Son of God, who existed in real human form among us. And John is concerned that those who call themselves Christians would embrace the glorious truths of the Scriptures about who Jesus was and is. He sees that as essential to being a Christian. But then he gives also that social or relational test. How do we love those who are also united to Christ? How do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we love the church? How do we show tangible commitment to and care for one another in the bonds of Christ? And he elaborates on that test from time to time. So the doctrinal test, the relational test, and also John gives a moral test. Is there evidence of real righteousness in our lives? Do we love God's words? Do we seek to keep God's law? Do we follow after the ways of God? Or do we follow our own ways or the ways of the world? And John sets forth this test several times in the book. And that, in fact, is the test that is before us in our passage this afternoon, 1 John 2, 29 through 1 John 3, 10. And John's sermon is a one-point sermon and it's simply his one point his sermon is 
Christian, pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, strive to follow in the way of God's truth and righteousness. And he's calling us to the permanent pursuit of holiness in the Christian life. That is one point. But he gives us an eight-point argument. So I've got eight points. So settle in, we're in for the long haul. But I won't, I'll promise you, I won't, I won't be very long. But um, it's all relative anyway. But it's an eight-point part argument for that one-point sermon. And as we look at the passage, it's important to remember that John is not telling you how to become a Christian, but how a Christian shows that he or she is a Christian. That's really important to understand. He's not telling us how to be right with God, how a person is called and declared righteous by God. He's telling us how we show that we are right with God. And his concern to us is how we live the Christian life, not how we enter the family of faith, or not how that we are counted among those who are accepted by God. It's important to remember that, and we'll emphasise this in the last of John's points. But John wants to stress over and over against the false teachers who we heard about when we studied 1 John 1, that pursuing holiness is important in the Christian life. Because the false teachers dare to say that Christians do not need to worry about mortifying sin because they were not able to sin anymore. They didn't even have a sin nature. And what they did in their bodies did not matter because it's only the spirit that matters. The body did not matter. And therefore following the instructions for God's word for holy living was unnecessary. That was what John was countering. And Jonathan, no, that's wrong, that's wrong. We do, we know we do, we continue to struggle with sin. We're able to sin. We do in fact sin. 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But in that beautiful verse, if we confess our sins, it's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John wants it to make it clear that there is a battle against sin that's ongoing. But John also wants to make it clear that Jesus did not only come to forgive us our sins, he came to change us, to make us like himself, to restore in us the fullness of the image of God, so we would be like our God in his moral holiness. John knows that we will not be perfectly like God in this life. But John knows that every Christian desires to be like their saviour. We desire to be like Christ. We des desire to be remade in the image of God. And that reality begins the minute we become Christians and it continues through the work of the Holy Spirit in accordance with grace will be completed on that last day. So in this passage he, he exhorts Christians to pursue holiness, to seek righteousness, and by living and practising that righteousness to show that they have indeed experienced the grace of God. Why should we live a life in pursuit of holiness? Why should we pursue holiness? Well, listen to his argument. The first part of his argument is point one. Christ is holy, and the pursuit of holiness is the mark of everyone who has been born of Christ. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure, 
Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, John is saying, if you really know Jesus, one thing you know about him is he is holy. There was no unclean thing to be found in him at all. There was only perfection. There was no sin. In him, in Jesus, we have the perfect human example of human perfection. And John says, if you know him, if you know him as he is, you will know that he is holy. And if, we, if you have been born of him, you've been born to holiness too. Paul said in Romans 6 that we have died and been raised again with Christ in newness of life. Well, if his life was holy and we've been raised again in newness of life, what kind of newness have we been raised to? We've been raised to a life of holiness and righteousness like his. That's why, that's John's first part, as to why we need to live a life pursuing holiness. Secondly, see how quickly I'm getting through these points? Secondly, it's enormous privilege to be called the children of God. And that's verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. He reminds us, secondly, that we've been adopted as children into the God's family. And he wants us to pause and reflect on the enormity of that privilege for a moment. We know it as Christians, we know the language. But just pause for a minute and reflect on the enormity of the privilege of having been adopted into the family of God. So we are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. But we've been invited into the family of God the Father Almighty. And he has chosen to make you joint heirs with his holy, begotten and perfect son. That is the privilege of what he has called a believer too. And in the third part of his argument, in this one-point sermon, he elaborates on that point. But look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So if we understand that second part of the privilege of being adopted into the family of God, of being children of the living God, then we will also realise that it's one of the qualities of children to bear resemblance to their parents, not just physically, but morally to be like them. So the third point is, those who are children of God already bear resemblance to their heavenly father, and one day they will bear a perfect resemblance to him. So verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So it's not just in that day we will be children of God. Already we are children of God by grace through Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, But what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, though we are children of God, we're not yet bearing the image of God perfectly because there's still weakness and sin and failing in us. But when he comes again, we will be perfect. We will be made fully like him. I hope there's no one here who that's a disappointment to because they think they already are. No, it's in that day. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But John says, think of it, because we are children of God, we already have begun to bear resemblance to our Heavenly Father. So people can say, 
Look at her. She looks like her Heavenly Father. She reminds me of her Heavenly Father. He acts like his Heavenly Father acts. When I see him, I see something of the God who revealed himself in the Scriptures. Because that person's character has been moulded in the image of God. John, having made the third part of his argument, goes on to say this in verse 3. And this is the fourth point. Those who live in hope of being completely like Christ one day will pursue holiness now. If it is our hope to be made completely like Jesus Christ, to be completely reformed into the image of our Heavenly Father one day when he comes again, then we will pursue that holiness now. That's what John says in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if your hope is that one day when Jesus comes again, you will be made completely like him, even now you will yearn to be like him. You will desire the things he desires. You will want to love the things that he loves. You will want to do the things that he has done. You will want to avoid and abhor the things that he avoided and abhorred. You will want to begin to be like him now. And in fact, John tells us, and this is the fifth part of his argument in verse 4, <clears throat> not pursuing holiness, but living in a life of sin, is evidence that we do not know God and we have not experienced grace. Look at what he says in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And John is saying that pursuing a life of sin is evidence of a rejection of God's word. God's word, which is Christ's word, he wrote it, he obeyed it. And when we pursue a life of sin, we show that we prefer to do it our way as opposed to God's way. So John says those who practice sin are practicing lawlessness. A rejection of God's word, a rejection of Christ. He goes on to make a sixth point to his argument in verses 5 to 6. You will see them there. Since Christ came to make us holy, the person who practices lawlessness shows that she or he does not really know Christ. Look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And John reminds us that Jesus came not only to forgive sin, but to take away sin. And that he himself was pure, perfect and without sin. So the person who lives that life of practising sin, bent towards sin, a life that is characterised by rejection of Christ, his norms, God's word, a life characterised by deciding we're going to do it our own way. Remember we've said here before that hell's anthem is, I did it my way. Over and over again what God has said in his words, that person shows they do not know Christ. See, John is speaking to people who are teaching in the Christian church. They were Christians, but you did not have to follow God's word. 
No, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will truly want to be like him. You will want to do what he says in his words. You can't claim to be a follower of Christ and not and reject what he says to do in his word. You will love the things he loves. So if we live a life that is hypocritical, that contradicts, that shows we do not really know Christ, even if we claim to know him. And John gives us this glorious truth here about knowing Christ. And he gives us a glorious principle or two in verses 7 to 9. And this is his seventh point in his argument, which is simply this. You do what you are. You do what you are. Listen to how he explains it in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John is saying, you do what you are. You do what you are. Your deeds reveal your heart. Your actions reveal your character. It is the same thing that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the presence of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 11 to 18. The Pharisees were arguing about the disciples' obedience to the ceremonial law. They were questioning issues about unclean food and various other ceremonial observances. And in Matthew 15, 11, Jesus said to his disciples, it is not that what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then later on he explained it in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In other words, in this case, the things that a person says are a reflection of what is in the heart, and that is what makes you unclean. And Jesus is saying that our actions are a public display of what is on the inside. We do what you are. And John is saying the same thing. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now we need to pause there for a moment because John is not saying that we are saved by being righteous. He is not saying if you practice righteousness, God will accept you as righteous. He is not saying that if you practice righteousness, you will be saved. Nor is he saying you must both believe and practice righteousness and then you will be saved. No, what John is saying is this. If God has done a work of grace in your heart, if you've truly believed on Christ alone for salvation, as he is offered in the gospel, if by faith alone you have rested in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then this is the way you will live. The evidence of God's grace working in your heart will be seen in your life. It will be seen. The New Testament has no other way of looking at it. Your righteousness wrought by the Holy Spirit will be evidenced in what you do, how you talk, and how you live. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So it absolutely is not that God will accept us as righteous as long as we make ourselves to be righteous. Nor that God will accept us as righteous if we will both believe and do good works. But when we believe in Christ, 
When we're accepted by God, when we're declared righteous because of what Christ has done, then it ushers forth a life of righteousness. You see, but the reverse side is true. What John says is, whoever makes a practice, a habitual practice of sinning is of the devil. You see, a life that is bent towards sin. And all around us we see lives that are bent towards sin. We see the world telling us that what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. To be Christian today is to be, you know, it, it, it is to be, it is to be wrong. It, 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 it's a wrong way to be. It's, it's a wrong view to hold. It, it, it's an embarrassing view. It's a shameful view to hold in the world today, to hold a Christian worldview. But a life that is bent towards sin, a life that is characterised by the rejection of God's word, by refusing to seek holiness of God in Christ, then it's a life that bears the mark of the devil. For John here clearly says, you do what you are. You do, you do what you are. But he also says, you do whose you are. Not only do you do what you are, you do whose you are. And he says this in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The child of God bears the marks of whose child they are in their lives. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. My parents always used to say to me that, that if you're the Lord's, you've been spoilt for the world. You've been spoilt for the world. The one who practices sin shows that he is not of the Heavenly Father. He is not born of God. So you do whose you are as well. What you do reveals who you belong to. Our lives show whose we are, whether we're of Christ or of Satan. Now we need to pause right there and say it'd be very easy to read this passage and then say, this is where we have to be careful and say that John is teaching something about sinless perfection or that you must be perfect in order to be a Christian. And John is saying neither. He's very clearly saying neither. He's addressed this in 1 John 1. The people who taught that Christians could be sinlessly perfect. And he has contradicted that. He said that Christians cannot be sinlessly perfect. And he's also addressed the issue of sin in the Christian life. Does a sin in the Christian life mean that one is not really a Christian? No. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. No, sin in the Christian life is not the issue he is addressing. He is addressing fundamentally the issue of a person who claims to be a Christian, who takes the name of Christ on their breath, but the bent and habit and characteristic of his and her life is one which is not in accordance with God's word. Even in this thing that we're facing in this country with conversion therapy, the ones who are the loudest in saying that Christians must not pray or families should not teach, they profess to be Christian. They profess to be Christian. The ones who are agitating to the government to, to make it illegal for Christians to pray about sin or for families to teach moral living 
They profess to be Christian. So just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are. And that's what he's saying here, that it is that the issue is someone who claims to be a Christian, who takes the name of Christ on their mouth, but the bent, the habit, the characteristic is the complete opposite of what God says in his word. So the person who is not in accordance with the grace of God, the truth of God, is not following in the way of righteousness. That's what John is dealing with here. Discernment. Do Christians sin? Yes, we do. We know it. Do Christians sin more than once? Yes, unfortunately we do. Does that make us not Christians? No. But John is asking about the bent, the habit, the characteristic of a life. And he's saying that the bent, the habit, the characteristic of our life reveals who we are, whose we are. And finally, he says in verse 10, the eighth part of his argument, the children of God and the children of Satan are distinguishable by the contrast of their subtle habit and character. Verse 10. By this is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John's concern is for Christians to have a concern about pursuing holiness. John is telling us that those who know what Christ is like want to be like him. For those who are married, remember early in the relationship when you began to see qualities in your spouse that you admired. You thought to yourself, she's a woman of such upstanding integrity and it made you want to be like she was. It makes you want to be better than you are. Or perhaps you said, he is a man of kindness and justice and I want to be like that. Well, everyone who is born of God sees the qualities of the Heavenly Father displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the depths of our being begins to say, Lord, that is what I want to be like. I want to be like him. Make me more like your son. Make me want to be like your son. Against the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil cause this desire to grow. That's what John is urging us to. John is telling us that we should not only relish the forgiveness of sins that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, but recognise that Jesus came to make us like himself. Because after all, Paul said in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And may God help us to pursue that righteousness by grace for his glory. Amen.